0: Good morning. As Rick mentioned, my name is Josiah, and I have the privilege from time to time of preaching here, and also I have the privilege of leading our uh, Resolve Student student Parent Ministry. Um, If you have run into me this morning, you would probably have thought, man, he seems a little nervous, (laughs) a little anxious. And whereas anytime we handle the word of God, there should be a certain weight that is placed on that, especially if we're going to proclaim it to a group of, uh, people. But if I'm honest with you, any pressure or anxiety today is not from speaking in public. I do that for a living. I walk into boardrooms and talk to business people and whatever. I can do it all day. Um, I don't have a problem talking. Let's just put it that way. But what I have found in our study of James and in my preparation for this is that I have been deeply convicted. I have been extremely challenged. It has not been easy. Because I have quickly seen my shortcomings. But with conviction comes grace. With conviction comes encouragement and comes away for God to work in our lives and for us to walk in the Word. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. See, the desire to measure up, our desire to be good enough, it, it's something that our whole world deals with, believe it or not. We deal with it in a larger sense and in in measuring up to God, but we also deal with it trying to measure up to other people, do we not? Like when you're first starting to get into that dating relationship, I can remember like, trying to measure up to Lisa. I want her to notice me because I want, I want me to be her best option, right? Maybe it's to, and somehow she, I fooled her, but, um, uh, but maybe it's our parents we want to measure up to, or our children, or a coworker, or a friend, or whatever it is. We have this innate desire to measure up, right? It's, it's almost inbred into humanity. And we can really shift that, not just from the mindset of measuring up, but we want to live a good, righteous life. We want to be good. And as believers, we might define that in different ways. You know, we flesh out different parts of Scripture differently, and the world does the same. People do not come to convictions about the way the world should work just at the drop of a hat. Something is internal in them that makes them think that way, and they believe they are living a righteous life. So as Christians, we have to ask the question, what in fact is a righteous life? But God has been gracious enough to show us that here in his word. For Christians, even though we have the Bible, we have tradition, we have people who have gone before us, we still ask that question. And our passage is going to flesh that out today. And we're going to see that there is something inside each and every one of us as human beings that is trying to figure out how to live a righteous life. So our big idea for today is this. As the Father's first fruits of creation, as His chosen people, we are to walk in the way of the Word by beholding the Word of God, Jesus Christ. As Christians, our instruction, being the Bible, is not dead. Hebrews 4 tells us that the word of God is alive and active. There's a quote that is attributed to a couple different thinkers and poets, both Christian and non, and that is this, you become what you behold. As Christians behold the word of God, we will in fact become doers of the word of God. So now we're going to dive into this passage and flesh it out, but before we do, please pray with me. Heavenly Father God, thank you for being a God who has given us his word. Thank you for being a God who loves his people and who has not left us on our own, who has not just simply left us to our own devices. Thank you for being a God who gently calls and restores. And thank you for being a God who brings us together to hear your word preached. And as your word goes out, Lord, I just pray that you would bring conviction God, I pray for those in this room who have not given their life to you, Lord, that they would see the need to follow you and that they would surrender, as Alex prayed earlier, that we would see salvation this morning. For those who are stagnant in their faith, Lord, for those who feel dry, God, I just pray that you would renew their spirit through the engaged hearing of your word, Lord. Please call us to action this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you look with me in verses 19 through 21, he says this, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let everyone, every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. First, James wants his readers to know quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. He's going to make the point that our religion as Christians will in fact have a tangible effect on our daily lives. In Galatians, when we spoke about reaping, sowing and reaping, we pointed to the reality that as Christians, we are in fact the reaped reward of Christ's blood. And as that reward, our lives will change. Uh, Commentator Scott McKnight says it this way, because they, being Christians, know their divine origins of their community and that their destiny is to be the first fruits. They are to live a life of justice. Their eschatological destiny is to shape their present existence. If our focus as a church is, in fact, fixed on being with Christ, as we sang earlier in um, Oh Praise His Name, if our eyes are focused on the day when Christ will return, our lives will be impacted today. There is not such a thing as being so focused in heaven that we will not be earthly grounded. If our eyes are in fact fixed on Christ, our lives will be impacted. So as Christians with a divine home, we should be those who are quick to listen. But listen to what? Are we just to be a group of people who don't talk a whole lot? As I mentioned earlier, I would probably be someone who's in trouble because I like to run my mouth. While all of the quiet people in the room would be super holy. No, that's not the case, right? That'd be stupid. Um, if James is in fact giving his readers though relational instruction, both personal and divine relational instruction, the personal relational instruction could be understood this way. In the same way that God, our Father, listens to us, we should listen to each other. We should be an understanding people. When people come to us with a different opinion or they come to us with, anger, or whatever it may be, we should be a people who can stop, put our pride aside, and listen. We see this in the ministry of Jesus, right? When people would come to him, the people in crisis would come to him for healing or come heal my daughter or whatever it may be, Jesus stopped and he listened. As God's first fruits, one way we can carry out the Christian mandate is to be a people who actually listen to one another. But that's not all of what he's saying here, right? The deeper meaning in this passage should be, would be understood with its immediate context that we should be quick to listen when we receive with meekness the implanted word of God. Be quick to hear is a phrase that, is, that, in other words, means that it should be routine of the Christian life to listen to God in prayer and the study of his word. In other words, we should be positioned to hear. If you have ever been expecting a phone call, what do you do? You're constantly just watching your phone. You you have that phantom ring, and you're just like, oh, no, they didn't call me yet. So you put it back, and you're constantly watching that phone ready to answer, right? Now, God is gracious enough to speak still when we let it go to the third ring, or the third phone call. But it is for the believer's benefit to be positioned to listen right away. There are going, Ecclesiastes 5.1 says it this way, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Listen, there are going to be circumstances and even powers, right? We have an enemy who is gonna to want to keep us from being in the word and being in prayer and being in com- Christian community. So we have to be vigilant. We cannot safely assume that we will somehow Drift into reading the Bible. We cannot somehow just be like, like Emily called it earlier, a chore. If we think we're gonna drift into reading the Bible, every time we open it, it's gonna feel wooden and like a chore. We won't fall in love with it. If you're, and guard is such an active term, right? Like we have to fight against sleep. We have to fight against wanting to watch TV. We have to want to fight against some sort of cultural idea that we can somehow become too pious or we can somehow love Jesus too much, right? Kevin DeYoung said it this way on Facebook. You cannot love Jesus too much. You cannot follow him too closely and you cannot adore him too intensely. Every other man, woman, or child on the planet, dead or alive, can become an idol, but not this one. You cannot devote yourself to him too fully or too completely. Church, that is an impossible thing that you can somehow read your Bible too much. You cannot become too much of a nerd in the Bible. You can become too com- tied up with the details, absolutely. You can become too tied up with just different like applications of it. But the idea that you can somehow fall too in love with the God of the Bible is a lie that I think even in some ways the Christian community has fallen into. That we can somehow become too far apart from the world because we love Jesus too much. And husbands, specifically husbands and fathers of small children where your wife is staying home, help her guard her time to be in the word. You have a duty, I have a duty as a husband and father of small children to assist in that. Martin Luther said it this way, or as my daughter so affectionately calls Marfin Luther. (laughs) He said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. That is one of the most counterintuitive things I would ever say has been said. When I have a lot to do, I might be lucky if I spend three minutes in prayer because I become so distracted, too distracted to spend time with the king of the universe. Too distracted to spend time with the one who is sovereign over all. After being quick to hear, James wants his readers to be slow to speak and slow to get angry. And again, as with all scripture, we should understand within its context. This isn't just a pithy uh, magnet scripture. Bridge magnet scripture. It'd be weird if you put it on your car. It was a virtuous quality in the Bible and in other Jewish writings to be able to control one's tongue and temper. Proverbs ten nineteen says it this way, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. What James is trying to point out here is not just the idea that it's a good idea to control your tongue, instead he's trying to convince the church that it's actually a key factor in being a righteous person. So where is your tongue today? You know, in James 3, it says we curse those created in the image of God. Now, don't just say, well, I don't R-rated curse people. <laughs> he cares about your G-rated cursing, too. Yeah, that's good. When James exhorts the church to be slow to anger, we should believe that this is more than just interpersonal, um, like within the church, being slow to anger as well. In verse 20, he says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But what is meant by the righteousness of God? Is it our justification as individuals to be made right before God? Culturally speaking, probably not. This could be translated more rigidly, God's righteousness, and and that righteousness word should probably be understood as justice. In other words, our anger, no matter how correct, no matter how right, does not activate God's justice. There, at this time, there would be factions that would arise. Let me back up a second. So this Jewish church, keep in mind, these are Messianic Jews, right? They have recently, con- they've left Judaism as a whole. They're still temple going. They're still going to the temple, but they're following Christ. And so in doing that, they began to receive persecution from fellow Jews. Wrongful persecution, wrongful slander. And as this would rise up, there would be other factions within the Christian community that would want to retaliate. And not just retaliate in words, but even retaliate in violence. And after they would retaliate in violence, they would often justify their actions as saying, we are executing God's justice. Church, that is wrong. Church, when we are slandered against, even if it comes to the point of violence, we should not retaliate and say, well, it's God's justice acting out. When we get so angry over the things we read currently surrounding our culture with abortion, we should not retaliate in attacking the individual who is created in the image of God, no matter how wrong they are no matter how inhumane their actions are, no matter how specific it is towards any one of us or our family, our job is not to execute the Lord's vengeance. We should be slow to anger to those. We need to remember they are blind to their sin. They do not understand. And we also need to remember if it weren't for God's grace, we would be just with them. Right. Amen. We are not more righteous than them on our own. So when we respond harshly or lash out in anger, what we are communicating is that the here and now is the most important. We become a people whose eyes are fixed here and not fixed on our heavenly home and our heavenly Savior, Jesus Christ. Finally, James is going to make it clear what he wants rather than anger, rather than the speech, is for the believer to receive the imparted word of God. First, he says, instead of retaliating, James wants his readers to put away all filthiness. This gives us the image of someone removing their dirty clothes with the intention of never being dirty again. James is saying, get rid of what you wore when you were not in the kingdom of God. Why would you go back to those rags when I've given you a robe? See, it's also believed that this phrasing was used in the early church during a baptism ceremony. The believer is shown that they are done with their old life. After the believer rids themselves of the filth they wore, though, they receive the implanted word of God. James specifies this word as implanted, showing that our salvation is a gift from God, and our response to it is because he acted first. James and his readers know the Old Testament. They know Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, which says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And, I no lo- and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God has given his word to his people, also in the person of Christ when we spend time in God's word, it resonates with believers because it is in fact written on our hearts. When James is saying receive the implanted word, he's making the point that the word of God is there for the believer and we should cultivate it. To not cultivate it would be just an act of insanity. Finally, we should cultivate the word in meekness. When we come to the Lord, meekness can here in this in this passage can go both to the put away all filthiness, as well as to receive the imparted word, and it makes sense theologically too. Like language, in the terms of language, that's how it works. It also would make sense theologically because when we put away all filth, we're coming to the Lord, right? And we're saying, God, I don't measure up. Everything I've done, it's sin. But also, then we come to him and we say, God, I need your word. And in both senses, we're coming to God humbly. Not because we think we deserve it. No, but because he's given it to us and we're thankful. Ultimately, in this whole first point, James is making, making, it, making the point that rather than lashing out in righteous, righteous anger, or speaking out, or doing things that are ultimately self-focused and short-term-focused, we should humble ourselves and receive God's word. And now James is going to show us not to just receive it, but to stay in it. Point two: Look into the word. Looking in verse 22 through 25, he says this: "But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves." For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Being a doer and not a hearer is not a new idea to the Jewish community, right? Right? as we know from the Bible ourselves and also from Jewish writings, doing God's word was always a central point in the Jewish life. They understood the concept simply of doing what your father tells you to do. It's the same thing we treat, treat, tell our children, right? It's what we teach them. It's why when, when Lisa or I are dis, were disciplining Isla, we say, Isla, listen and obey. I asked her the other day what I say to her more than anything else, hoping she would say I love you. She said, listen and obey. <laughs> well, that means I love you. Uh, but in all seriousness, we get that as people, right? We get that as parents. We get that as children. We, we understand that listening to instruction from our earthly fathers and not doing anything doesn't really carry much weight. And so when James is saying this, the Jewish readers are like, yeah, James, we get it. Thank you for repeating. The reality is, for one, we have to have it repeated. That's why I thought it was the one the thing I said to her more than anything else. But at the same time, they would have been like, Of course, we know this. So what is James trying to get at? When we are just hearers, we deceive ourselves. And that's exactly what Billy Graham used to call spiritual inoculation. And, it, and we would maybe call it as nominal Christianity, right? When co- Christianity becomes cultural, it's something that we just hear. It makes us feel good inside. We get enough shot of something and then we move on with our lives. Nothing changes, nothing happens. Big deal. Christianity is no different than Saturday college football. You get as much a high doing that than you do when you have cultural Christianity or whatever else you want to call it. Adam would say that, but he's a Gator fan and they just stink right now. Um, sorry, I just saw you. Our deception though is not just in the sense of becoming false in our religion as christian paul's writing to christians he believes his audience are believers they're messianic jews but what he's getting at is saying when you when you're deceiving yourself you are not living the christian life he's not saying your your christianity is fake what he's getting at is that who you are is a child of God, a chosen person who has a greater calling. And instead, you're living as someone in the world. Do not deceive yourself in that way. Be true to yourself. In other words, be true to Christ in you. Jesus addresses this in Matthew seven twenty four, verse 227 in his parable of the rock, the man who built his house on a rock, saying this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them if we are just simply filling our lives with Christian ease and other good things, we should not be surprised when our faith falters. If you're in here right now and you feel stagnant or tired or just you feel like God is far, ask yourself, am I following, am I doing the word of God? Am I just kind of glancing at it and then moving on? But what does hearing and doing actually look like? James is such a great pastor, great author, he decides to actually tell his audience what he thinks. He gives us an illustration, a parable, where a man looks at himself and sees himself, but then moves on. When he forgets, we'd assume he comes back and does it again. It's almost expected in this illustration that the second part should read something more like this. Be like a man who looks in the mirror, realizes that his hair is all messed up, so he does something about it. But that's not what it says. Instead, he says, don't look in the mirror. Look intently into the perfect law, the law of liberty. When we look intently, it's communicating the idea that we look receptively. Again, to quote McKnight, he says, it's like the way an art lover meanders through a museum of paintings, are the way a sports basketball fan watches a basketball game, are the way a parent gets on their knee and listens to their child's story, are the way a musician can just sit and listen to an amazing composition composition of music just taking in every note, both thinking technically And emotionally. This person who looks intently at the law is in contrast with what we've talked about in chapter one. It's in contrast with the person who does not trust God in times of suffering. It's in contrast with the one who asks of God but does not expect. It's in contrast with the one who blames God for his temptation. Ask yourself today, how am I looking at the Word of God? How am I engaging with the Word of God? I know I said it earlier, but if you are stagnant in your faith right now, look there first. If you feel dry, you feel tired, are you guarding your time to be in the Word of God? Do we believe that this is alive? Do we actually believe that? Do we believe that as we stare into the word of God and we behold the word of God that we will be changed? If you're not looking at the word of God for goodness, what are you looking at? We have plenty of things to look at. We can look at ourselves and realize just by looking at the world around us we don't worry. we might justify ourselves by playing a game of this is good, this is not, this is good, this is not but then we also look at other people, right? We might look at friends, parents, our children, other pastors. Paul addresses this comparison in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, and then also 17 and 18, saying this, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. We are not the standard of doing good, we are not the standard of walking out our faith. I'm going to say that again. You are not the standard of good. I am not the standard of good. Tim, Alex is not the standard of good. Billy Graham, who I quoted earlier, Martin Luther. No one on this planet other than Jesus Christ is the standard of doing good. This is why James, rather than saying, look in the mirror and do something about it, he says, look intently at the law. Look intently at the word because what you behold is what you will become. One of the most tragic epidemics that has subvertly influenced the Christian world, and when I say, I even would call it tragic in the sense that in some ways it's held to one of the highest degrees is the self-help movement. There is a lot of good that can come from self-analysis, for sure, there is. But with that said, I think as a Christian culture, we have given into the idea that the most important thing we can do is become the best me, that our purpose on this life is to achieve what you can achieve. The problem is, with intense self-analysis, that is never prescribed in scripture. So much so that Jer- we're not supposed to trust ourselves. Jeremiah seventeen nine says that the heart is deceitful above all things. And instead of doing that, David calls out and says, oh Lord, search my heart, in Psalm 139. Rather than sw- focusing so much time and effort on trying to figure out what went wrong or right with our lives and what we need to do to fix it, we should dive deeper into God's Word and seek to know it more. And let me tell you, I am one of the most self analytical people on the planet. So I am preaching to myself here. And when I say that this has been a week of conviction, this is not one of the areas. Because, guys, it is so easy to do something, to fall, or even to have a weird encounter with another human being, and then just be like, OK, all right, all right, what went wrong here, 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 here? OK, I can come up with this solution, this process, and it'll all be better. In that, all I'm doing is self-improvement moral, moral crutch. Rather than, you know what will help us? is if we fall in love with Jesus. Emily's testimony was extremely applicable to what we're talking about this morning, right? We will not change. We will not change for any significant purpose if we do not fall more in love with Jesus. And the way to fall more in love with Jesus is to be with him. David Mathis says it this way. He says that, let me back up a second because before I wanna set up this quote. I realize self-analysis is easy. It's our life. It's where we live. The movie is about us, right? That's the way we all live our lives. So it makes sense that we would be super analytical about that. But God has not, God, instead of thinking about our lives, God has called us to give up our lives, to die to ourselves, to take up our cross. When we're gazing at God, we become aware of what makes us not holy. Holy. Gazing in the mirror or gazing at others will only make us aware of things we want to change about ourselves. But it is only in comparison to God's holy nature that we are going to know what needs to change. David Mathis says it this way, that Bible reading is a daily prompt to own our failures, to newly repent, and freshly cast ourselves on God's grace all over again. Cast yourself At the feet of Jesus, submit to the word. Submit to being in the word. Look intently. Guard your time. Carve out time to dig in. Turn off Netflix. Turn off social media. Guys, hear me. I'm preaching to myself here. Keep me accountable to this. Keep each other accountable to this. Let's be a people who dive into the word of God. It's evident that when James uses law, he's referring to the Bible, right? But why the distinction of law of liberty, uh, the perfect law or law of liberty? As we studied, studied in Galatians 3 and 4, the Old Testament law did not have saving power. It was a mirror similar in the sense that it reflected how fallen we are as individuals. Mankind's inability to keep even the smallest part of the law made us accountable to all of the law. James' understanding of the law was, in fact, this. He understood that we could not keep the law on our own, but we needed someone to do it for us. We are to look at the law through the lens of Jesus Christ. We should understand that Christ is the fulfillment, and in him we are made perfect. If that is, in fact, our view, if we understand that the law has been kept in Christ, then we can truly understand verse 25 when it says we will be blessed in our doing." Because then our deep, deep desire to keep the law of Christ to the highest degree possible is in no way legalism, but is instead liberty. We at that point do not have to be burdened to keep the law, but instead we have the privilege. We have the privilege of living a life, the life that we will live when we are with God completely and made perfect. When we are made new, we will no longer struggle. But now we have the opportunity, opportunity to fight. We have the opportunity to fight for holiness and fail. And fight and get back up and fail again and fight and get back up and fail again and still be called a child of God. When we strive for holiness, when we're, when we, when, to strive for holiness, you have to be studying the word closely. And when you do that, you'll become what you behold. You will find that the word of God points to things in your heart that you didn't even see. Mm -hmm. And as our internal heart changes, our outside will change. So that's how we become a doer of the word. In fact, by submitting to it. Finally, James is gonna call us to now walk in the word. Assuming that his readers desire to follow the word of God, he's gonna sum up everything that is described in chapter one by saying, if anyone thinks he's religious, covering all the good that he's talked about. In other words, if anyone thinks he's wise, steadfast, and humble. James' aim is not to ridicule religion. This should not be a passage we go to to say, see? Not, this isn't a bad statement, Emily used it, but I had it in my notes. Relationship over religion, that's not this passage. What that's talking about is religion in the sense to gain your salvation. What James is talking about, now remember, who James is, right? Half brother of Jesus, he is a good Jewish man. He follows the law to his best ability. This talked about in Acts. The religion James is trying to communicate is the idea of unadulterated devotion to his savior, Jesus Christ he will be devoted to him as much as humanly possible. But James goes as far to say, to the one who can't control his tongue, again, he deceives himself. No matter how positive all the elements of his religion are, James goes as far to call it worthless. But when James, he says bridle his tongue, excuse me, but the one who cannot bridle his tongue, he deceives himself, deceives his heart. When James says worthless, he's not going as far to say his religion is false. I kind of touched on this earlier. However, worthless in its original language and in this context should probably be understood as powerlessness or fruitlessness. In other words, our deceiving ourselves means that we are refusing to walk in who we are supposed to be. When, the, when we Christians give in to the talk of the world, when we give in to the slander, when we give in to the gossip, when we give in to the cursing, you name it, we're in some ways handicapping our religion. We're quenching the spirit, to put it another way. We're allowing the world we are allowing the world to be our master. And you would think that something as simple as our tongue would not be that powerful. And we're gonna go into it further later on in later weeks, but what do you think about what you say? I realize and I am like I'm so scared for lack of a better phrase, I'm so, ner- I'm so careful because of the name it, claim it movement. I am so hesitant to that, that in some ways I want to believe that what I say doesn't actually have bearing on this world. But it does, guys. We cannot give away a truth because someone took a truth too far. Does that make sense? We cannot think that our words are meaningless just because people put too much meaning in our, our words. You have power to encourage. You have power to make peace. James, after showing what a worthless expression of the Christian religion looks like, he's gonna shift his instruction to what pure and undefiled religion looks like. As temple-going Jews temple-going Messianic Jews, excuse me, purity was a cultural core of their religion. They did not just hope to be pure or passively think about it. It was their highest aim because to not be pure meant they couldn't commune in the temple. And the temple was an extension and a representation of the chosen land that was promised to them. So when they went into the temple, it was a promise of something to come. So if they couldn't go into the temple, they, they believed they weren't able to commune. Now at the same time, they understood, as Messianic Jews, that their access to God came through Jesus Christ. So their life ambition to be pure was a practice to what was going to come when Christ returned. With that in mind, James wants to express that our true religion is not simply being holy or set apart, right? That's good, and that is a component of pure religion. That is part of living the Christian life. We should fight for holiness. We should fight to control our tongue. We should fight to control our eyes. We should, conf- we should fight for relational unity. Those are all things we should fight for. However, that's not where it ends. James is gonna point to the reality flesh out the idea of being in the world of not of the world. And not in the sense that I think I've been taught mostly where we're supposed to be relatable to the world but not sinning in it. Instead, he's gonna point out the fact that our world is fallen and hurting. And that there are people, and he speaks specifically to orphans and widows, who are marginalized and weak. In church, that is our call. We have a duty as Christians to be engaged with the weak of our world. In many ways, our culture does do a better job of caring for orphans and widows. It's different than it was in the Old Test- or in the New Testament here in the ancient world. But there's still so much to be done. I would also go to say that we as a culture, both as a church and in our, sec- our secular culture, is really, really good at looking like we care really a lot. <laughs> We're really good at um, going and playing with some kids, snapping a picture, putting it on, on Instagram or Facebook, and then uh, what was that kid's name that I played with a couple years ago? I wonder what he's doing now. We're really good at that, I'm, I'm, myself included. Please hear me. We're quick to give money, but are we quick to get into the mess? So who are the marginalized today? Well, for one, we should count orphans as the marginalized. One of the major, major uh, cries of the pro-abortion movement right now is that a lot of these kids are going to be put in foster care, so it'd be better that they died. I don't know about you, but not much is, uh, there's not much more that says you don't matter than saying you'd be better off dead. What are we doing? There's so many avenues that we can get involved with. And I understand, we all have our lives going on. But what I want us to do right now, is I want us to ask ourselves, what are we doing? What about the widows? What about nursing homes? What about people in your own family? I realize how infrequently I call my my dad's dad. Now, thankfully, he has seven children. But what about others? Who am I willing to take the time to know? Going further, what about those who are here from another country? He dropped it. (laughs) What about refugees? And immigrants. No matter where you stand on their assimilation into America, the statistics as to wh- whether or not they're invited into an American home are staggering. It doesn't happen. It does not happen. What about single mothers and single fathers? Pregnant teens? What about the mentally disabled? What about the homeless? What about the poor? What about the uncool? You name it. I bring this all up to you, not in a sense to think, okay, Alex, you need to go out when you go to UNF, and you need to fix all this in Jacksonville. That's insane. And you know what? God wouldn't love you anymore if you were able to do that. But that's not your expectation. I don't want to overwhelm us in the sense of thinking that we somehow have to fix everything. However, I want us to feel the burden. I want us to see that as Christians, if we are so quick to be more focused on just living a holy life than we are to serving the people outside of these walls, then we're missing our pure and undefiled religion. Our hearts would be pure in the sense that we're abstaining from sin, which is still part of it. Paul throws that in to say, hey, don't forget, live a holy life still. Stay unstained from the world. But what are you doing outside? Everyone is trying to do what they think is right. But the problem is, they're asking themselves what they think is right. They're not asking the God of the universe. They're not asking the God who's given us the word of God, which is sharper than a two-edged sword. They're not asking the God of the Bible who says that his word is a lamp unto our feet. If in fact the word of God is a lamp unto our feet, why else would you light a path other than to walk in it? So James is calling us to receive the word. By receive the word, receive the word of life. And then look intently into the word. And by look intently into the word, look intently into the word of life. And then he's calling us to walk in the word. I don't want to oversimplify things, but James is making it really simple for us. So I'm not going to make more of this passage than it is. I think as American Christians, we want to somehow achieve more in our Christian life. The idea of submitting and humbling ourselves and just seeing, and watching God work in us and watching God change our hearts to where we just can't help but get outside these walls, to where we just can't help but serve the marginalized, it's hard for us. It's hard for me. Engage with the word and walk, church. worship band wants to come up. I hope that there's someone in here this morning who realizes they don't measure up. And I would go as far as to say I hope someone realizes that they have been fighting to measure up and they are finally realizing that they don't And if that is you today, I want to invite you to receive Jesus Christ, who is the word of life. Have you done that? If you haven't, and you want to do that now, I want to invite you to stand up. I know that's weird. But as God has promised, if we acknowledge Him before man, He will acknowledge us. So if that is you, I'm just going to give you 30 seconds to stand. To the next person. You're realizing that your spiritual life, your walk with God, though you may be like Emily, who made a commitment to Christ a long time ago, you're realizing your life is stale, stagnant, and the most important thing in your life is not Jesus Christ. The most important thing in your life is maybe what's coming next week. Maybe there's another person in your life, excuse me, someone has become an idol to you, or something has become an idol and you're realizing I need to fall in love with the word of God again. If that's you, I'd like to pray for you after, the church, after church, either myself, Tim, or Alex, or one of the elders. And I wanna invite you to find someone to keep you accountable in doing that. Finally, there's two people in this last category. First, some of you in here are doing amazing work in the margins. I want to say thank you. Thank you for setting an example for us. So what I want to ask you to do this morning, who are you going to bring alongside and show them this is how you serve in the margins? Because there are a lot of questions. People don't know how to get involved. I think there are a lot of people in here who want to do something, but they don't know what to do or how to do it. Who are you going to grab the way Paul grabbed Timothy? You say, I see Christ in you. I think you, sh- you could do this. Come, come serve with me. And then finally, for the person who realizes their Christian life is mostly just consists of how good their spiritual life is for themselves, what are you going to do? First, get into the word. You can't do that last one without doing the first two. You can't. Otherwise, you're just going to be fighting for holiness on your own, and that's just false, and that's false religion. But at the same time, we need to ask ourselves, and we need to wrestle, who is outside? Who is hurting? Who is weak? Who is no one speaking for? Who is no one hugging? Who is no one touching? I don't want us to feel like we just, now we have to do something in the sense of like, well, no, if I don't do something, God's not gonna love me. But at the same time, I've heard it described that Paul looks at the cross and says, wow, I don't deserve that. While James looks at the cross and says, well, now I, have to, now I will give him everything and I will do everything. Let's exhaust ourselves for the cause of Christ. All while keeping our eyes fixed on Christ. Father God, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for inviting us to be with you. Father, as we sing, I just pray that you would continue to encourage and convict our hearts, Lord. Change us as people, Lord. Let us be a people who can just look back and see, wow, God, you have transformed my life. You have changed my desires. You have changed what I chase after, Lord. God, God, Give us eyes to see who we should be engaging with, Lord. Give us compassion, the way when Jesus looked at the crowds and said he had pity on them, he had compassion for them because they were people, they were like sheep without a shepherd. God, give us those eyes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.